Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. and welcome to Home Education Matters. Today I am joined by Sarah Beale, who I'm very excited to talk to today because she's talking about something that I think is very dear to a lot of home educators' hearts. And this, this is the move from attachment parenting when your child is little to something that's a bit more meaningful when your child gets older. So I've done a very bad explanation of that, Sarah. So tell us a bit about yourself and then tell us a bit about what you'll be talking about today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Eleanor. Yeah, so I guess well, that introduction is a perfect lead in to explaining a bit about what I'm doing in the world and how I've evolved as a mother because um, I would have described myself as an attachment parent several years ago if someone was saying, can you introduce yourself? And that's an important part of my mothering journey and certainly laid the foundations, although I was kind of late to the attachment parenting party. It took me a few babies actually how many babies did you go through well I I got to four and I I believe I did need all of those four yep to as a (laughs) run-up well to kind of break me apart completely so that I could kind of (laughs) come back together again in a slightly trans transformed way as motherhood does right it does your lucky Uh, fifth child though was just spot on then like the no, I didn't have, no, I didn't need oh. five, although, although. You made your way through all of them. <laughs> I've got a dog, I've got a dog, and man, that's, that's yeah. next level. That's, he's <laughs> like, yeah, um, that's a whole other level of transformation. Uh, so what, what I, so I am an unschooling mum, and that's important because it's, I guess it's, it's part of our, our values as a family to live without force. There's a lot of force in the school system. And so for us, this is part of how we how we've journeyed as a family to come to where we are right now, uh, which is by nowhere finished or arrived. But uh, what I noticed when my children got beyond those toddler years is that all of the uh, attachment parenting, conscious parenting, natural parenting, like classes <laughs> that taught you how to, I mean, there's, you know, there's baby wearing groups for babies and then there's the the stuff, you know, um, circle of security and hand-in-hand parenting type stuff when your kids are little. And then the real work starts where they really start to become who they are, who they're naturally born to be, the the sort of defiance, I guess you might call it, um, for want of a better word, uh, you know, oppositional kind of behaviour. And then I was like, but I did attachment parenting. Mm-hmm. Like I'd sl- I'd sleeping with them and breastfeeding 24 hours. Like they shouldn't be saying no. Like they're yeah. supposed to now do what you, you I put want in them. the groundwork. Everything's now I perfect, put right? In the groundwork. <laughs> like man. So I felt quite ripped off actually because I believed that the purpose of attachment parenting was something that I could tangibly measure in a particular type of child. Like a malleable, obedient one or like I mean, a very connected books, one? Or, I think mm. that's what the, well, so so naturally a, a child who is connected to their mother is going to just do what their mother wants, right? That's what I believed I'd been sold. <laughs> why, <laughs> why else would I put, why else would I spend thousands of dollars on All those sleepless carriers? nights. <laughs> 
exactly all the baby carriers and the sleepless oh nights God. yeah I had a baby carrier for every outfit and yet <laughs> I had these children who like just still did what the hell they wanted and questioned me at every turn so I did feel like either I'd read the book wrong or there was something wrong with my children or that there was something wrong with me what and, sort of uh, age was this? So, I mean, what sort of, how many years had gone had gone past since the kind of baby wearing that you came to this realisation? Oh, well, I realised it actually when my fourth was little mm-hmm. because um, so I was still very much sleeping mm-hmm. with the babies attached to me and on me and uh, we were still living in that very kind of chaotic small child world of Play-Doh mm-hmm. and flour all over the floor and mud and sticks and <laughs> painting the dog. I was still in that when my fourth child who like literally if you wanted to write a book on the ideal start in life that was that was all of my children really but particularly my third and fourth my fourth child was all of my children were born at home no um no sort of birth trauma no like just on the floor of the bathroom very easily and quickly we we spent the next week just kind of in bed she was I mean my children that that's that's pretty much particularly my third and fourth their start in life so I felt like I'd got as close to textbook attachment parenting (laughs) as possible Mm -hmm. and then at around two uh she started being quite aggressive to I mean I use that term I mean she wasn't really being aggressive but just so people know what I'm talking about to to like other children like she would pick she would pick on like the the child who was really quiet and meek and she would like pull their hair or like scratch them or normally in play she wasn't like they wouldn't let her play with their toy or um and I started having to really when we were out and about like at playgrounds and stuff I would I would have to actually be with her all the time which was also mm. contrary to how, how my other children wanted me to be and my nature as a parent I'm not a helicopter parent at all mm. and but I could not let her out of my sight because she'd be like pulling some poor child's hair or and she was she was two uh, and it was very very hard for quite a few months while I was having to sort of act seemingly out of my own character mm. and also go through this um reflective work of like trying to work out why this child was seemingly so like angry and she actually still is quite a lot of the time she's eight now and I remember thinking like this this isn't what it was supposed to be and I've done all this work I'm still doing all this work and instead of having these children who followed the attachment handbook in terms of you know the that story or that narrative of having the close connection and then they when they're ready they they move away and they're independent and they separate and I really did feel like I've been sold a bit of a lie but I guess the blessing is that that was really the start of my quite deep journey of un, unlearning questioning absolutely mm. everything and realizing that actually no one knows what the bloody hell they're doing but about 50% no, of those people comes- go write a book and pretend they do so- <laughs> when it comes to parenting I think you might be right and because <laughs> you had two possible ways you could go there didn't you you could have you could have said you know what I've been sold a lie here I'm gonna go back to the orthodoxy and do it the way everyone else does it and I'm gonna 
you know, be their kind of strict mum and all that kind of thing. Or you could go into a kind of a slightly deeper exploration of what was going on. And I'm guessing you chose the latter. Yeah, I mean, I always say I don't want anyone to think that I'm not who I like. I don't want anyone to think that I'm some amazing person who like chose this. No, like literally my children dragged me by my hair. <laughs> like there was no choice. No. So it's just because they they wanted a particular style of parenting and there were four of them and they all knew what they wanted yeah. and there was one of you. Yeah, okay. you're out. I mean, if there's two parents, but um, by and large, it, it was me at home with the kids. And yeah, I was literally, I was outnumbered. That's basically what it was. There was just too many of them. And, so, and they're very close together in age. So they were like a pack of wild was, animals. They were sensing your weakness, like the weakened gazelle, <laughs> yeah. and they went yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, four small children are far stronger than one grown-up <laughs> who's knackered from several years of pregnancy and breastfeeding. <laughs> um, so where did they drag you then? Where, what, what journey did they drag you on? I mean, I'm still not sure. <laughs> still, <laughs> still not I there still, yet. Still like, oh, my God. No, I don't think we'll get there. No, but I mean, certainly, certainly I've reached a level of acceptance uh, and surrender and they are two words that just pop up constantly as my companions I guess of um, in life and mothering to really lean into accepting and loving what is happening right now yeah is that irrespective of whether you personally approve of it if you like or, or whether it resonates with you because that must be quite difficult do you really accept it, I suppose, is what I'm asking? Or do you just kind of like on the surface accept it and underneath you're like... Oh, there's, t- oh, there's times where I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> sure. yeah. yeah, but I guess I've been a parent for 15 years almost. So I've got some um, lived experience and some hindsight now. Plenty of examples where one of the kids has either wanted to do something or not wanted to do something and very strongly advocated for themselves. And we've come to a point where I've really felt like I had no choice uh, either the, to stop them from doing the thing. I would really have to go into conflict with them and potentially be violent. And, and when I say violent, I guess what I'm, I'm not talking about physical violence necessarily, but coercive manipulative parenting where, where you're really overriding your child's instinct, right? So we've we've often, when kids want to or don't want to, in mostly that's the case in our family, not wanting to do something, you know, you've got that choice, you know, do I override what they're being told internally, what their guidance, their inner guidance is telling them, because I think my will is stronger and my opinion more important and my authority stronger, or do I go with them and I mean, 99% of the time I go with them. And, and as I said, it's not necessarily because I think all their ideas are amazing in the moment, but it, I'm just literally outnumbered and outwilled and outspirited. And then they do the thing or don't do the thing. And then I go, oh, God, oh, now I get why they did or did it like or always, always. Like there's just... There's, I can't really think right now of any time that stands out where they've just made a wrong call and it's totally turned into disaster and I've then gone back and gone, I told you so. I can't really think of many of those times. Yeah, they because... always seem to know and I don't know how they know and I don't know they know in the moment <laughs> and then it turns out that they they did know. 
it seems to go from a position where you're taking the path of least resistance and then it turns out that they were right all along, which happens a lot with my mother, um, who <laughs> invariably is right all along. But I have noticed it with my children as well. So maybe it's just me that's wrong and everyone else is just right. I mean, and I that's, go, <laughs> that's great for my ego first thing in the morning. Thank you, Sarah. So I've, I've got a question for you then that comes from this. If your children want to do something, so say one child wants to do something and you want to do something else, at what point does their wanting something trump your wanting something? most of the time why then (laughs) so that leads me to my question is why because i think it's very important that our wishes are met as well as mothers and invariably they're not you know it's we we invariably put ourselves below everyone else's and i'm thinking if you've got four children and you honor and respect everything that they want to do when they want to do it what about what you want to do when you want to do it is that like bottom of the list well, I guess there was a time when they when they were very small when practically, yes, certainly. And and for me, I very much viewed that as a season. You know, I had four yeah. young children close together. I was literally breastfeeding and pregnant continually for quite a lot of years. Like my my fourth child was born when my oldest was six. And then I had two or three more years of breastfeeding after that. And I'd been going for like a long time. And and yeah, I didn't get I didn't go on like spa days and retreats <laughs> and cocktails with the girls while the kids stayed home because they didn't want to no one wanted to leave me. Um and so that was a season. Is so, that because uh, you figured there there's an end date and my time for that will come? Because yeah, that's, I, I think I that's so. how I viewed it. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember that when my two children, my two children are very close together in age. And for about five years, we never went out for a meal. We didn't even go out for coffees. We didn't go anywhere because it was just so unenjoyable. They would, yeah. I remember the very first time we went, we were living in Egypt and my two were, I think like three and four. And I thought, okay, let's risk it. Let's go for a meal. It was one of those where you all sit around on cushions. I thought it's very low key. They managed to smash like a Heinz ketchup bottle all over like an antique Egyptian table. And, and I just thought, this is why I don't go out for meals. This is exactly why. Yeah. And so another few years went by but I remember all that time I didn't mind because I just thought my time for that will come. And lo yeah. and behold, I'm now in that time when I can yeah. go out. My, my two are teens now. I can go where I want when I want. They won't even notice me leaving the house. So so I'm yeah. in that moment now. So did that help you You sort of yeah. get through that period? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I guess this is why it's so important to share stories and be surrounded by community, isn't it? Because, you know, I had friends who had older children who had got to that point. So mm. I was able to observe that my time will come as you say my time will come and and we were pretty um <clears throat> we were pretty good at being very flexible and creative as a family around how we might manage everybody's needs like if i really wanted to go out for a coffee uh we would go to a cafe where they had a garden or we would drive to the beach and i'd get a takeaway or you know whatever but but still yeah there is that like need i guess to accept that when they're little their needs are immediate their demands are quite physical and you're not doing the same things you did when you were 25 you're just not because your life's changed so part of i guess accepting and acknowledging that my life had moved into that new into a new stage was understanding that things were changing and they naturally have to change. And despite my, uh, I guess, dr- my, my vision of parenthood prior to actually having a children, where, um, you know, 
your children just fit in with your lifestyle you know like you when you're pregnant and like people tell you all their stories about and like oh yeah well I'm just going to keep doing the same stuff and my children will just fit in with my life <laughs> yeah um, so I remember yeah. those uh, yeah I remember those <laughs> days the relationship will come first and and yeah. the children will fit around that yeah. yes I remember those halcyon yeah. days yeah yeah <laughs> Until Sorry, they but, arrive yeah, and then until every arrive. single theory has gone out the window. Yeah, and yeah. it's interesting because I'm wondering with four children and they all like they all can have their what they want. You know, they all can sort of like if they want something and generally it turns out that they were right to want that thing because it all, you know, that path of least resistance for you. What about the other children, though? Because what about when they all want different things? I'm guessing mm-hmm. having four children, they learned to compromise very early on. Well, yes. Um, or learn to fight very early on. Yeah, yeah they, well, they're all very strong self-advocates. But naturally, when you've got a larger family, and I think this is pretty consistent across everyone I know who's got a larger family, is that the children very naturally do learn where they need to bend around others. And, I mean, of course, they all they do like to keep score too. Like, oh, <laughs> but he always gets what he wants and now it's my turn. You know, that sort of thing comes up a bit. But it's it, there's a lot of negotiating sure like there's a lot of like okay so who needs what and how's this going to work and who who used the VR headset for half an hour yesterday and who gets more t- you know like whatever that stuff comes up and sometimes they need some help but they're probably quite good are they at yeah. remembering who's had what I know oh we, oh, yeah. <laughs> we put our Christmas tree up a bit early and I, we had the you know the angel thing to put on the top and I said to my eldest I said oh come and put the angel on and my my daughter looked at me and kind of went what again and I was like well it, we haven't had a tree for years for lots of annoying reasons we travel around the world we haven't really had a proper tree for at least it's got to be at least three four years since the last angel thing and she remembered distinctly that it wasn't her who did it it was him and now it's her turn and and I I couldn't even remember what tree it was, what country you're in, anything. But <laughs> they stack it up, don't they? And oh, I think yeah. they're very good at knowing whose yeah. turn it is. And I'm yeah. sure in four, they with four, they also know have a, have a really good sense of actually know it was this person last, mm. and now it's my turn next, and things like oh, that. They've got amazingly good memories. <laughs> things like they can't remember where their shoes are, mm. but they know who opened the first present last Christmas. <laughs> yes, that's so true. And yeah, um, it's funny. So, I, I mean, kids just naturally have a um, a strong sense of justice. I mean, I think human beings have mm. a strong sense of justice. And what I, what I see in kids where they have a lot of freedom particularly is that self-advocacy naturally dances around with that idea of justice and there there is this sense of fairness that's quite inherent and it isn't all one of my children in particular very very strongly values justice and is it a boy by any chance yeah (laughs) yes yes they love it don't they (laughs) yeah and he is also a strong self-advocate but he doesn't necessarily put himself first he puts the sense of right first whatever that is and so he he will remember and he will um and he he tried a common theme with my second and fourth is I hear him saying, This is why we don't do such and such, Peggy, because this happens and that happens, and then we blah blah blah. And he and, and it's a little bit like a like a barrister giving his like that. final like summary. Um <laughs> I think one of the best conversations I ever had with my children, particularly my son, who is all went through a period of being really obsessive about fairness. I had a chat with him when I said, 
I said that fairness isn't everybody getting the same thing. Fairness is everybody getting what they need. And I think I, I, I said it a couple of times over a period of about six months because I really liked it. I'd read it somewhere, it's probably on a T-shirt. And, <laughs> and I thought it was very good. And he really has taken that on board now. And now we don't get that nearly so much. And I found that that was that distinction between everyone getting the same and everyone getting what they need was really helpful for my two. And that, that silenced lots of dissent, I think, inside their heads. I think they were able then to work through a lot of those situations. Yeah, I mean, sometimes um, <clears throat> I do find that we might have to actually tease it out because they they forget in the moment. I think with young children in the moment, their needs are like the most real to them, of course. And what I notice is that, that it's actually a very natural, well, I assume it must be because I notice it fairly consistently, like part of their development that they, and this has been a this has been a big sort of realization for me in observing my children uh, and learning how to live with them. That when they're very little, they are naturally so self interested. They really mm. are all about staying alive. Yeah. Like I must survive, and to to survive and stay alive, I must have all the things that I need and want. And there's no difference between needing and wanting things. It's all as important as the next thing. And I will do what I need to do to make sure that happens. That's kind of how they start out in infancy and toddlerhood and beyond. And, it, you know, it can be it can be quite an arrogant, like it can seem arrogant to us who... It can seem selfish, the, can't it? It because can it seem is selfish. Inherently. Because, yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and it is. And I think it needs to be. And yeah. it seems to us hard because we've forgotten that that's what we used to be like and perhaps we weren't actually allowed to be like that we mm. I think young children get forced out of that prematurely into you know say childcare settings or having to do things that they don't actually want to do because it's convenient for everybody or we believe that they need to learn these things and so it two years old, they trot off to nursery and they put their bag on the hook and have to, whatever, have, I don't even know what happens in nursery. Maybe they don't have a bag. Maybe they don't have hooks. I don't know. But the point is that they sort of get like pulled out of that egocentricity very early <clears throat> because they're being trained for this school system. They have to know how to kind of fit in with the class yeah. far earlier than, than is natural. I think school forces a certain orthodoxy outside of school so that you can fit into school. But yeah. I also feel that sometimes as parents, because when we were younger, perhaps we weren't given the space to just make our own decisions and be as selfish as we would naturally want to be as children. And I think sometimes we can sort of say, well, I, I wasn't allowed to behave Absolutely. like that. Like, Look at me, I've turned out all right. And it's, it's a very similar argument that people yeah. use when you say you're not putting your child into school. They sort of say, well, I went to school and I'm all right. Yeah. And I think it can be a little bit like that when you parent. Yeah. You can feel pressured to be a similar parent to the way you were parented just because mm. you sort of think, well, I'm okay. I, I liked my childhood. I, I, I'm happy. So it's almost like you don't want to judge your own childhood. Yeah, I think that's true because, I mean, as you would know, being in the home educating world, one of the, the big challenges that comes up for parents who are considering this life is judgment from their community and overwhelmingly, <clears throat> excuse me, their parents. And I think that's a big part of it. Like if we do something different to what's been done before, does that mean that we're judging 
our own childhood harshly or does that mean that we actually were wrong and we actually didn't have a happy childhood and and maybe we've created this whole like story about this idyllic childhood that actually wasn't so idyllic and that that stuff comes up a lot I think for for all parents but particularly home educating parents I think because I had a really happy childhood (laughs) I I mean I was parented in a I think it was probably quite a progressive way. Both my parents were really quite progressive parents, although I went to school and I did that whole kind of structured thing. But even so, as an adult, I I kind of fell into home educating. And with that, I think the unorthodoxy came. I don't think I went into home educating because I thought I want a different approach to how my child grows up. I think I went into home educating and then that opened up all Mm. these opportunities of actually they don't need to be um, conforming to these social norms that I think when they're in school, they kind of almost do because otherwise it can be very difficult to settle in, can't it? I think so. And and we, we actually did spend some years in school And so uh, we got to see that that's true. Like if you were in the school system, because my one or two of my children were constantly sort of pushing back against the things that were were required in school and we were, it's okay in those younger years where you can say to the teacher, we're not going to do homework, we're not going to do the readers. That was okay. But definitely there was this sense always that we were going to get to a point and we did get to that point where we're either in it and we're fully in it, yeah. which means our whole life has to be about making that work or we're not in it, you know, and yeah. that's ultimately where we, that's ultimately where we got to. So I, because actually, uh, I mean, I do have people contact me often who whose children are in the school system and they want some kind of mentoring or guidance around the kind of parenting that that we practice in our family and I'm really, I don't I tend to not work with those parents at all, actually, because it's it's too hard to, you know, partner with your children and live, give them that that sense of autonomy that they so desire and, and in my family demand, and also then have to put them into this system where they have almost no autonomy. Does they, that they differ if to... they want to be in school? Like if they're, because some children love school and mm. really and really enjoy it. Would you be able to do the kind of autonomous parenting, which we perhaps ought to define actually, um, the autonomous parent, if they actually enjoy school and every morning they're like, yeah, take me to school because I really want to go. I guess. Do yeah, those children guess. exist? I'm guessing guess. they do. <laughs> I mean, I've got thoughts about that. <laughs> okay, I will get to those. But first of all, let's define yeah. autonomous parenting because attachment parenting is this idea that you're with your child, uh, in the early years, you're there whenever they need you. Normally, you keep them sort of in a sling or something like that. You co-sleep, that kind of thing. And the theory is, as you said, that you're sold this idea that it's the continuum concept, isn't it? What's the yeah. na- lady who wrote that? Jean Lido. Yeah, Jean Lido. Okay, yeah. so, and it's this idea that they can become independent and very autonomous people naturally because they've had that chance to choose when they want to be independent and you found that actually it was a longer process than I think you thought you'd bought into so where did it morph into autonomous parenting and can you explain what autonomous parenting is to everybody listening well I I guess I mean you can't the the point is you can't define it (laughs) because as soon as you start defining something it can become very dogmatic and what's it look like for you then what it it looks like for me is honoring my child's sense of natural sense of autonomy and sovereignty they actually know themselves that they're not empty vessels that require me to be explicitly teaching them things or kind of filling them up with my beliefs and wisdom 
that they are free to be who they're meant to be. And and it, you almost can't define it because, as I said, it's, it's the opposite of dogma and yeah. ideology. It's the opposite of that. And, and attachment parenting to me felt like it was actually very rules-based, um, that, that you have to wear your baby a certain number of days and you, uh, hours a day and you have to sleep with your baby and you have to do this and you have to do that and that there'll be this this natural yeah, outcome at, at the end. I mean, it's interesting when you're talking about the continuum concept, which remains one of my favourite books and I still recommend it to parents to read now, but taken out of the context of an Indigenous tribe somewhere in South America, <laughs> putting it in the modern world where we're not, in fact, surrounded by grandmas and aunties and yeah. best friends and sisters and 25 other village children, our lives look quite different. Yeah. And we are living in a very different world to when that book was written in, I don't know, the late 70s or whenever, whenever it was written. And the idea that we could kind of just transplant an Indigenous way of being and living into our modern world where we've got digital technology and social media and our children generally aren't running around the village with the neighbourhood children, sadly. There are challenges, right? And yeah. so if you take any concept and turn it into an ideology, you then get rules because people want to know how to do it how do yeah. I do that? How do I yeah. be that kind of parent? Um, and that's kind of the, I guess that's the opposite to how we live in that we are talking about responding to things, to needs as they arise in quite a fluid way and being in dialogue with our children rather than imposing our ideas on our children. So if you're very dialogue based, at what point in the dialogue do you make a decision? And is it always the child that makes that decision? Um, it's not always the child that makes that decision, mostly for practical purposes. But, but there isn't, I mean, mostly the kids will make the decisions about what they want to do, uh, you know, in the day or even in the week. Even when we were in Australia and we would do lots of camping trips, that was mostly how we kind of travelled or holidayed. Often the kids would decide where that would be. And even now, between them, like a kind of collaborative. Well, yeah, maybe. Or well, like there was this one um, iconic Beale family trip that we called the zoo tour. <laughs> one of my children, my second, he he's still continues to be passionately devoted to the natural world, particularly animals. And always from when he could talk, he uh, was communicating this passion uh, some, some people might say obsessively. <laughs> it's how really all of his learning has has sort of manifested. Uh, and he really wanted to do a zoo tour. Like he's like, why can we visit all the zoos in Australia? And we didn't quite manage all of them. We're like, yeah, okay. So we just like set off for a few weeks and did like this, this zoo tour. We just visited the zoos that we could in in like a three or four week trip. Uh, and that was that was his choice. And the other kids were... I don't remember anyone saying, no, I don't. I really don't want to do that. I mean, if they had, then we would have had further conversation because that does happen now where someone will say, this is what I want to do, and somebody else will say, well, that's really not what I want to do. And there are times where, yeah, one of the parents might have to go, do you know what, I'm going to be adjudicator. And for reasons of practicality, because we don't have six months to make a decision on this, I'm going to say how it's going to happen because 
we have to leave the house. <laughs> How does that go? Because I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you, <laughs> but I have a very similar approach in as much as no decision is ever handed down. It's always discussed and it, it we don't vote or anything. It just, it naturally occurs organically yeah. that we make a decision. But what happens um, when a decision is made that one person really doesn't, one child really doesn't agree with, do you then allow that child just not to go along with the decision, maybe to stay at home or not, or do their own thing? Yeah, maybe. I mean, as the kids get older, that's practically more possible than it was when they were younger. I mean, when they were younger uh, and my husband worked outside of the house, um, they all had to come. So one child, I mean, there's, there's plenty of times where a particular child wanted to do an activity and the other kids didn't, and they did just have to come. And we would just work out how we could make it okay. So yeah. maybe it's that um, one of my kids uh, did not want to go to a skate park one day, and one of my kids really wanted to go to the skate park. So I'm like, all right, well, how about we take the computer, you can stay in the car, you can keep playing Minecraft, while whoever wants to go to the skate park goes to the skate park, that sort of thing. Or like... You know, the, the beautiful thing about being in a home ed community, which we were very much in Australia, is that there's usually enough parents and families yeah. to kind of do, you know, oh, well, I'll take the kids here and then you take the kids there. And that's we've actually just uh, taken a house for a few months up in the Lakes District to live next door to another family very much because we just need to do that for a bit. We need to so we, we can accommodate. And actually we're taking the kids out today to a play. My 12-year-old doesn't want to go he did tell me that he didn't want to go. He was very strongly, like he was determined that he wasn't going to go. And I bought him a ticket anyway, because sometimes he changes his mind, but he hasn't changed his mind. So he's not coming. Um, And in fact, would you say, you know what, I think you'd enjoy it. And because sometimes my children aren't very good at projecting forward into things that they would enjoy. And if I, if I kind of left them to make their own decisions, especially as they got to slightly slumpy teen years, (laughs) given the choice, they probably would not choose to do things because it's just the you know that it, for them it's the path of least resistance is not trying new things and not going out putting themselves out there because when you're a teen it's quite intimidating and they don't always want to and sometimes I feel like it's my job as a parent to expose them to things that they wouldn't mm. naturally perhaps want to and then when they're there they absolutely always without doubt love it and come back to me and say oh I'm really glad you did that um and I sort of think, okay, so that justifies my decision. But then I feel bad before that because I think I'm dragging them out of their comfort zone. So it's, I find it quite challenging, that point. Mm. Well, I think a couple of things. Firstly, our brains are naturally predisposed or designed to reinforce the decisions that we've made by bringing in the evidence that proves that we were right. So, you know, your child um may have had as equally amazing time staying home in bed watching YouTube as they did going out to the thing, but you made them go out to the thing. And so then, of course, you're looking for the validation that that was the right decision. So I guess always thinking about that. Um, but there are times, yes, where like you've got to know as a parent, and this is where the relationship is so important, when where where do I support that child to sit up against the edges of this thing that's feeling a bit uncomfortable? How will I help them learn what that feels like, where that friction is, whether it's the right time to actually push through that? 
And I don't think there's one answer. I mean, there are times where I have said uh, to, so my oldest is almost 15. She had about two years cocooning in her bedroom. And then summer this year kind of like remembered the world and came out again <laughs> and, <laughs> and emerged this like almost, she almost looks like a grown woman. And she's, she's, spent a lot of time in that two years. I know other parents would have been like, how can you let your child stay in the bedroom for two years? I mean, she came out for food and stuff like that, scurried back in again. Um, but she she spent two years learning about herself. Um, and so even though another parent might have made a different decision, we we're all happy with how that how that went because she she appreciated the fact that she wasn't pushed to do things that she didn't want to do. And in that two years, she deep dived into what makes her tick. That is fascinating because I I think that is a really common experience among mm. mothers of teenage girls in particular. Mm. And I think that the vast majority of us would have intervened and would have actually said, look, come on, you know, get up, get out of bed, engage with life. And I wonder whether if she hadn't emerged, because you had a happy ending to that, but I'm sure there are examples when there wasn't a happy ending. And I'm wondering, mm. at what point would you have intervened? How long would you have let it go? Would you have just let it go and, and hoped for the best? Or, you know, had faith had faith in her, I suppose. Mm. Well, I guess I'm what I what is reinforced to me all the time is that it's not wrong to trust our children. And there's definitely some, like, nail-biting moments yeah. as a parent yeah. where you're like, <laughs> well, it's no different to when your two-year-old wants to climb a really high ladder at the playground and you and you're like, at what point do I go over there and just brace myself? <laughs> uh, and there were so many times where, um, out of out of my four children, only one of them is actually a physical risk taker. So one of them uh, quite enjoys a minor injury. He quite <laughs> enjoys the thrill of like, oh, if I jump into this river, what's going to happen? Um, he finds that fun. And so he's always pushed himself physically. The, the others never really have, actually. They've got this, like, very effective risk management, internal risk assessment system that makes them go, no, I'm not going to That inner that. clipboard, health and safety clipboard. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but my third, um, Arthur, who's now 10, he has always been the one that's the most physically gung-ho. And, and there were so many times where he'd already be at the top before I'd even finished, I don't know, breastfeeding the baby. So I couldn't have, I yeah. couldn't have stopped him climbing the fence. So I was like, oh, they're actually, they won't die. Like human beings are like almost wired to survive and thrive. And I guess I just used that, I just reflected on those times where my younger children pushed things physically and didn't die to this scenario with my oldest daughter really being determined to stay in her bedroom for a long time. I and think for me, sorry to interrupt, I think for no. me the difference would be that when children are younger, yes, they are, they absolutely, you know, they've got that survival instinct and they've got to try out things and climb as high as possible. But you, you'd have to be living in a cave not to see the difficulties that our teenage girls in particular are having at mm. the moment with the online world and just just you know that covid didn't help the whole lockdown anxiety that whole thing there's there is there's a lot of evidence that our teenage girls aren't okay and they they're not and lots of them aren't surviving literally aren't surviving and so, mm. so that whole scenario for me when your teenage daughter for example perhaps just goes it goes into a very internal huddle 
I would love to think, oh, yes, they come out of it like a butterfly. But lots of them don't come out like a butterfly. And as a parent, it's very, very scary because you think, you know, I mean, for example, when your daughter was in this sort of cocoon, did you insist on anything? I mean, did you sort of say, look, you've got to eat, for example, or you've got to shower or you've got oh, that, to get out of bed? Or did you did you really leave it to her and sort of trust her just to do whatever she wanted? Yeah. I mean, eating's never been a problem in our family. <laughs> <laughs> That's not something I have to worry about. Um, oh, and you know what? You know what happens when you force a teenage girl to shower? You've never got any hot water. So that's like a slippery slope. The key for us in relation to that question about how do you know when to trust and how do you know when to intervene? It, it always comes down to relationship and conversation. So my um, my boys too have played around a lot with being nocturnal. One of them currently has just gone to bed and he plans to stay asleep until he naturally wakes up. And I imagine what will happen in the next few days is he'll say, okay, now I want you to help me. And we're just, we, you know, that that happens not infrequently but we have constant conversations. So my daughter wasn't in her bedroom for two years with no one talking to her. (laughs) Like, you know, I would take her food. I, we would have, she would come out of her bedroom. I mean, I'm sort of handing it up or exaggerating (laughs) for like, you know, Mm. the performance of it, but she, there's a lot of talking. Like Mm. sometimes I I actually said to my husband yesterday at the end of like a a day, you know, those days where your children are just coming at you with all of their thoughts and feelings. And I'm like, oh my God, I just need a holiday from my children's thoughts and feelings. So (laughs) this is where the nuance of your family plays into it because my children really like to talk to me about their feelings and thoughts a lot. And so I'm not ever really guessing what's going on because they're telling me a lot. What if that's not there? Yeah. So, but, but still, if you, I guess this is where the attachment foundations are important, whatever that looked like for you. I mean, when we talk about attachment parenting, of course, everybody goes straight to breastfeeding and and baby wearing, but really what it's about is being connected with your children, Mm -hmm. having that imprint from those very early hours post-birth and having this relationship with your children where they can like rest in in your confidence in them and not all children want to talk about their feelings because not all humans are the same right we're sometimes they find it hard as well to to deal with them themselves and if they talk Hmm. about them I think they can feel that they're going to have to deal with them yes that could be true I mean I so I've got one of one of my children my youngest actually she's eight she doesn't talk about her feelings in the same way as the others but I see them in her actions Mm. and she's still at that age and I don't know whether this will change or not where she will just like throw things or shout or scream or 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 like that's how she'll express that there's something going on or something will be or she'll be like extremely like demanding or like specific about what has to happen and in a way that's like something's something's a bit off whereas the others will actually say this is what's going on and and verbalize it and she may or may not ever get to that point because she's just got a different personality again where the fact that we're not in school is so relevant is that my children aren't being sent away anywhere away from me to deal with things on their own and I remember what it was like when they were or two of them were where you know I'd pick them up from school and one of them in particular my oldest you could tell the you'd see the face and kind of uh, 
okay, I know, like, I know, I know what kind of day that it's been. Mm. And then we would only have this like really short period of time before we had to get back on the hamster wheel with which to process those emotions. Yeah. And then they have to get shut back in again to go to school at 8.30 the next morning. So I, I remember what that was like. And I know that there are so many teenagers still in that world. Mm. And one of the reasons I say that I don't work generally with parents whose kids are in school is because I have no idea how you navigate the teenage years with kids in school. I really don't because my kids do have constant access to me. So while my daughter was in her bedroom a lot, she had constant access to me. She yeah. she came out, she talked to me. She might, um, one of the things that she's always loved to do is go to the supermarket. Um, and she would often do that with her dad, actually. It would be a Saturday thing that her and her dad would go to Asda <laughs> and do the grocery shopping. And that connection would come mm. by her choosing what snacks she wanted for the week and us yeah. honouring her desire to be vegan, for example, and um, playing around with recipes and having input into what she was putting in her body. And I don't know what that looks like outside of our family, our lifestyle, because the kids don't ever have to put their feelings away mm. if they don't want to. And yep. that really does, I believe, make such a big difference, like time, yeah. time, you know. And that's another reason why we don't enforce a schedule because I see in my own life the benefits of having endless time and no one rushing you to get to something. So there's no there's no need to finish doing something because you've got to get to something else. I mean, sometimes naturally that does happen, of course, but there's no there's no rush so if my boys want to stay awake all night for a fortnight because they've got a game going on with their friends overseas they can you see that's interesting because I know there are going to be people listening who say well if I just let my child choose how they spent their day they would sit in bed they would play fortnight and they would eat potato crisps and I'm guessing for you, you're pulling your face as if to say, yeah, what's the problem? Yeah. Whereas to me, I'm having slight palpitations at the thought of that. So would that be okay with you? I mean, is there anything that you would say, do you know what, this isn't how you should be spending your time? Are there any any decisions your children could make or options your children could choose that go so against your values that you would say, that you, you would discuss it? And even if they were adamant, you would say, no, this isn't, this isn't how you're going to do it. Oh, there's one or two. <laughs> okay, come on then. Tell us your red lines. You can't just well, leave them like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty anti-pharmaceuticals. Mm. So if they wanted to vaccinate themselves, you'd be like, that's not that's happening. A, that's not happening. Yeah. Even yeah. if they so, said, so look, I've got, got all the data, you know, mm. I've, I've looked at all the data, I've studied it all, I, you know, I've looked at everything. This is the route I want to choose for mm. myself. So at that point, bodily autonomy isn't, isn't, a, you know, isn't a thing. Yeah, because I know that they've not read the data I've read. Okay. Okay, so that's a, that's an interesting red line. So do you yeah. have any any other red lines that, you know, when it comes um, to sort of autonomy or bodily autonomy or anything like that? Um so we've started to we've started to play around with alcohol in our house as a te as teen well we've, I've got one teenager. So that's that's You mean something. they've started to play around with alcohol or you well, as yeah, a family yeah, have yeah. started? Within to... yeah, within okay. the family. Yeah. I mean, this is a real, these are like controversial things to talk about, right? And not no, it's many good. people are actually talking about how they handle it in their family. 
so again there's there's open conversation there's like oh what like how are we going to handle this what do we what do we think's reasonable not reasonable really trusting ourselves as parents and our children because you can't trust your child if you don't trust yourself either because mm-hmm. because those times those you know those nail-biting moments that we were talking about the sort of edge of your seat what's going to happen you get to the teenage years and that's just like I mean I, we don't even we're not even at 15 years so god I mean I know that there's going to be more of those like oh my god what are we gonna you know <laughs> and I remember my teenage years like my parents saying, oh, you need to be home by 3 a.m. or and then get into the point where I didn't need to be home by 3 a.m. And I imagine they were like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but they never gave me that sense, actually. My parents were very relaxed about lots of things, um, which, which was that was a great example for me. And maybe some of it's personality. Like, like we, my husband and I both just don't stress in general about a lot of things that other parents mm. probably would. And I think that's a combination of our personalities, our children's personalities, the fact that we're in constant dialogue and the fact that we just have this inherent trust in the like the world. Like I just don't believe that the world's a terrible place. Mm. I believe that the world's an amazing place and we're made to be amazing and there's not a lot you can do that's going to get in the way of that. That is the general approach. So when the kids are like, oh, can I try that thing? My first thought isn't, oh, my God, that's going to kill them, except for that one thing that I said. <laughs> um, but mostly it's like, oh, well, let's see what's going to happen. And, yeah, there are limits. Like oh, back in summer, my 10-year-old wanted to try uh, and some kind of energy drink. I can't remember what it's called because we've not really, it's just not been a thing. But we were in like a corner shop getting some snacks and he said, can I try this drink or maybe it's like mother or something like that Mm, they're all the same to me but I know the things you mean high sugar high caffeine that kind of thing something like that and maybe there's some other things in it too and I was like oh you know that here's one of those moments again here's one of those moments where I go that way or I go that way and I mean is there a right or a wrong I mean that's the other thing I think we often believe and are certainly told that there's a right way and a wrong way and it's high stakes like you got to pick the right path. And I just don't think that's true. Mostly. What did you do? Did you just, um, did you take the middle route? And I sort of just took a deep breath and I'm like, oh, I just, I really don't, I actually don't want you to. And then we were, and he's like, oh, but I really want to try it. But his friend was with, we were with another family. His friend was there and his friend said, I think it's a bad idea. I drank those for a while and I got really addicted. And my son said, yeah, okay, I won't. And he didn't. That kind of peer assessment almost, that can be really helpful, can't it? Yeah, it's a a friend that my my kids too, um, particularly my boys and my oldest, they've got really lovely friendships and they've been through rocky times. They've been through times where they've been arguing and not speaking and you know, destroy each other's Minecraft worlds and whatever. And But they always come back and in their friendships, it's the same. They come back to dialogue and relationship and loyalty all the time. And they, I've, I've watched them from very young learn how to navigate boundaries and limits within friendships too. And, and with each other as siblings. And with each other as siblings, yeah, absolutely. So the, the boys are... And again, this is the, the the specifics of our family. They're twenty months apart. 
for all intents and purposes, often like twins, like they're a package deal and they've just always had this beautiful group of mm. friends around them. And um, But my daughter, who's who's older, she, she's she got very close, a couple of very close friendships too. And it's been similar. It's like, where where do I end? Where does this other person begin? How do we dance with those limits? What I need from a friendship, what they need, what I'm willing to give, what I'm not no different to how we navigate relationships in our family. Mm. And and I see that projecting outward. And, yeah, so if one of their friends says, I don't think that's a very good idea, they're actually really likely to pay attention to it. doesn't mean that they're going to agree, but they, they do. They're like, oh, I really respect that person, so actually I'm going to listen. I think that moves me on to the final question I had for you, actually, because... I think a lot of people listening might think, wow, four children, autonomous parenting, it must be chaos. And I'm guessing to a degree it is chaos, but maybe not bad chaos. But I'm thinking that I wonder whether it's harder to do this approach if you just have one child, because then they won't learn perhaps that push and pull. They won't learn the compromise. Do you think it's it's harder to to create that kind of dynamic where they grow up learning that, you know, the people's needs matter as well and because it's difficult, I think, if you're a parent of one child and you're taking this approach, not to just kind of, I, I want to say cave in, but you know what I mean? Like kind of yeah. always sort of give them whatever they want. And I wonder whether that brings its own challenges. Yeah, well, I guess there's this idea in our society that children won't learn lessons unless they're explicitly taught. So is it true that someone who's only got one child uh, or that is it true that that child isn't going to learn the same things as a child in a large family? Yeah, that's probably true. But it's also true that a child in a large family isn't going to learn the things that an, an only child's going to learn. Like an only child, I imagine, is going to be really resourceful, resourceful about where they find friends, what they do yeah. with their time. Is it a terrible thing that a child gets all the things that they want and need without having to compete for it. I I don't know. I mean, that's the story, isn't it? That like an only child is going to grow up not knowing how to relate with other people. They're always going to get their needs met. God, I mean, imagine if you could always get your needs met without having to compete with other people. Imagine if you had one or two parents who were able to accommodate everything that you needed in life. Like that doesn't sound terrible to me and I'm sure what I see is that naturally the lessons that we need to learn get presented to us at some point and I don't think they all need to be learned by a certain age in order to be able to make your way in the world I'm I'm sure like I'm still learning so many things now like it doesn't stop right and that's the that's the underpinning um belief around home educating and in particular unschooling is that the learning doesn't stop and you don't even really need to look for the lessons because as human beings we're we're just like um primed to to bring them in when when it's time for that particular lesson yeah and i think when it comes to autonomous parenting so often in fact almost completely the lessons are on our side aren't they to learn not the children teach us so much i think when it comes to that kind of that kind of trust like you said surrender as you said at the beginning yeah 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 and that to me that that's very comforting because it it means that i we just know that everything's going to be okay 
this is my big takeaway from my chat with you today is that I think a lot of it so depends and so comes from your own mindset because you exude like a positivity and an optimism and a kind of the world is a genuinely nice place and it's full of genuinely nice people. And I think a lot of the success of, of, of every approach, but particularly this one perhaps, is the mindset that you as a parent have going into it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I I don't know how you, like, that's just my personality, I think. Like, I, I um, and I, I guess if it was a parent who was generally very fearful about the world and had an assumption that everything was terrible, uh, I mean, you probably wouldn't be living the way we're living. You just, you would just be doing something different, wouldn't you? So, yeah, I think. Well, there's sometimes those parents can find themselves in this position, can't they? Because they've, they've sort of withdrawn their child from yeah. school or perhaps their child has, has left school and they found themselves in this position and it isn't their natural comfortable yeah. zone. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what I, I guess what I know about humans is that we're, we're very diverse. We're not all the same. And there are people who require a lot more certainty, a lot more planning, a lot more what some people might call structure, which is usually more about a sort of need to have all of the information. And I actually have a child like that. Um, you know, I need to know what's going to happen. I need to know what it's going to look like. Um, I think what we've been told is that living sort of without fear is something to aspire to. I don't think that's necessarily very helpful because I think our fear response is a human instinct that we actually need and it helps us not die. Yeah, being kind of like easygoing and optimistic, we're almost told that that's like something to aim for. Well, I think it's just a personality type. It just happens to be the one that I have. But knowing so many different types of people, many of whom actually really enjoy to have more structure and to have more information and to do more research before they make a decision. That's not a negative thing. That's not like a lesser personality type. That's just a different, someone different. And those people, their daily life might look different just because they need more information before they make a decision. And that's not wrong. That's just a different, that's just different. So I think like if you were one of those parents, as I have had to learn that not all of my children are spontaneous, not all of my children are happy with fly by the, by the seat of your pants. And sometimes they need notice to do something and they need information that I don't necessarily need. And I've got to have regard for that. A parent who's not like me and maybe really likes planning and information and is naturally slightly presenting as more fearful maybe they've got a child who's much more kind of happy-go-lucky and not needing all the information and spontaneous. And so similarly or conversely, they've got to be switched on to that in the same way as I've got to be switched on to the fact that my children aren't all like me. Yeah. It's about being responsive, isn't it? And yeah. I think this is another thing that I think probably underpins it all is, is being able to respond to our child. And as you say, when you home educate, this is something that we're very lucky that we can do on a kind of 24-hour basis. Yes. You've mentioned, Sarah, that you coach parents. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and also where anyone can find you on social media, blah, 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 mm. so that they know where to find you if they want to? Yeah, well, I sort of like the term mentor rather than coach because I'm I'm not really a coach. I don't really have any desire to coach someone. Um, not that I don't think that, I, that, that that could be something that people need, but I don't really have any intention to like teach anyone anything or for them to change who they are or what they're doing. But I do enjoy, and I think I'm quite good at being a, a guide or a mentor 
and taking that role of just someone who's been doing something for a bit longer. And I I think that nowadays, unfortunately, because we're not really living surrounded by all of these people who've been around longer than us, we sometimes have to seek those people out. And I've, I've been really lucky to have a number of those people in my life when I was a younger parent and also a younger home educating mum. And I think it's an important offering just to be able to provide an ear, uh, provide some comfort, provide some insurance um, and give people a space to just work through some of those struggles that I'm still navigating myself. So that is that is what I offer to um, parents who are living outside of the school system. And where can we find you on social media? Well, I'm on Facebook. That's the that's the um, the place I hang out the most. But I've got a website, which is the Renegade Mum. Nice name. You can contact me through there. Yeah. And I'm on Instagram as well as the Renegade Mum but most active on Facebook. Okay. So if you come onto our Home Education Matters Facebook group, you could perhaps put a link to your website and yeah, then people absolutely. also can ask any questions uh, in there as well. So, cause yeah. I'm sure there'll be lots of people who have questions because to many parents, this is a slightly terrifying approach and that like bits of their brain going, it must be chaos. It's, it must be bedlam. They must just eat <laughs> chocolate and play computer games all the time. So it would be interesting. I know shock horror. <laughs> and so it'd be interesting to, to see people's questions on the Facebook group. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been really Thanks wonderful so to talk to you today. And hopefully this will have been a slightly eye-opening and perhaps a challenging podcast for some people. And I think that is one of the best things about home education is that Absolutely. we're open to all different ideas and everyone's approach is just as valid as everybody yeah. else's. So thank you so much, Sarah. That's been wonderful. Thanks, Eleanor. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day.